The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, I'll just read this to you, beginning in verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. Now who's the they here that Paul is talking about? Anyone know? Who is the they? They did not heed the good news. Who? The Jewish people. He's talking about Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about Israel. It is the consummate section in the New Testament Scriptures about Israel. And if you don't understand those three chapters, much of the rest of the New Testament is hard to understand. Or you will at least misunderstand it. It's critical to know. He's talking about Israel there. They did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So, Paul writes, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. And then Paul quotes Psalm 19, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Talking about the heavens and the earth itself. Creation. The voice of creation. Unspoken in terms of sound, but proclaiming God in terms of all that we see and are aware of in creation. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. They did not all heed the good news. Jewish people had a hearing problem. And the hearing problem was they didn't. They didn't heed. They didn't hear. They didn't listen to the words of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God in order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is to this day. And then I said, Jeremiah responds, Amen, O Lord. God gives Jeremiah the intro of a message and before God can continue, Jeremiah says, Amen! (laughs) Yes, Lord! Note that in verse 2, the Lord says here the words of this covenant. In verse 3, the Lord says, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant. In verse 4, He says, Listen to my voice. Again in verse 6, we'll hear Him say, Hear the words of this covenant. And again in verse 7, Listen to my voice. It's the same Hebrew word every time. Hear, heed, listen. It is all Shema. Shema, as in the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Jewish people even called it the Shema. 
If you ask a Jewish person today, could you recite the Shema? They would immediately rattle off, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, thy God, the Lord, is one. They know the Shema. They just don't know how it works. Somehow, God said, Hear. The Jewish people would repeat over the years, Hear, listen, heed, but they didn't. And that's why the covenant ended up broken. The one thing God wanted Israel to give ear to was the covenant. Now there's some debate, some argument about what covenant is being talked about here. Hear the word of this covenant, he says in verse 2. The covenant at the core of this message from chapter 11, 12, and 13 all combined. The covenant at the core is the Mosaic covenant. And you've got to be clear about that. Some scholars argue it's not. They say because of the timing of Jeremiah, because he's writing this just after the death of Josiah, probably at least at the beginning of this passage, in the days of Jehoiakim, perhaps Jehoiachin, they say, well, he's talking about not Moses' covenant, but Josiah's covenant. And they reach back to the immediate 2 Kings 23, verse 3, the king, Josiah, stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart, with all His soul, to carry out the words of this covenant which were written in this book. That is, Josiah made a covenant to keep the words of the Mosaic covenant. And we're told that all the people entered into the covenant. It's the Mosaic Covenant, though. It is not Josiah's Covenant. It's bigger than Josiah's Covenant. Because, well, four reasons why. Number one, because Josiah's Covenant was a reaffirmation of the Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. When I say Mosaic, I'm not talking about a pretty floor or a pattern. Okay, The Covenant that came through Moses. Second reason. I'll give you three more reasons with a word to go with each. Initiation. The difference between Josiah's covenant and the Mosaic covenant is initiation. The Mosaic covenant was initiated by God. Josiah's covenant was initiated by Josiah. Josiah said, Lord, we covenant with you to keep your covenant. But in the case of the Mosaic covenant, God said, I am bringing this covenant to you, Israel, and I want you to covenant with me. God was the instigator. God initiated But know this, you Bible students know, the Mosaic Covenant is the only covenant God ever made with the Jewish people that was conditional. Every single covenant He made, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Land Covenant, you can track these through. I'll I'll give you some passages later on to, to go back and look if you want to. The Davidic Covenant. All of these covenants to Israel and the people of Israel were unconditional. In other words, no matter what Israel did or does, God will fulfill them. When God says to David, I am going to set one of your line on my throne as an eternal king, the Davidic covenant, He'll do it. And it doesn't matter what Israel did or does. God's going to do it. Unconditional. When He said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and I will bless a people through you. Unconditional. No matter what happens, I'm going to do that. The land covenant, the promise of 300,000 square miles to the people of Israel that has only ever been 30,000 square miles at its height, the entire promise God made, that covenant, He's going to fulfill. 
Well, yeah, but the Jewish people were stiff-necked and they rebelled against God. Yeah, but that was an unconditional covenant. It has nothing to do with what they do. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. It's an if-then covenant. If you do these things, then you will stay in the land and live and be at peace. If-then. Ever wonder why? Why is the Mosaic covenant conditional? All the rest are unconditional. Why didn't God just make the Mosaic covenant unconditional as well? And I think there's a single and obvious reason. It's so that the people could choose to love the Lord. God put conditions so the people themselves could respond to the Lord, could show love for the Lord, and could follow after the Lord. That's why our relationship with Jesus is conditioned upon our believing in Him. God says, here's salvation, but you got a part to play. And your part is, receive it. I want you to believe me for it. I want you to put faith in me. And if you will believe in me, we got covenant. And I will unconditionally take care of you and take you on into eternity. But if you don't believe in me, if you choose not to, well, that's the condition of salvation, that I believe in Him for His grace. Initiation. God initiated the covenant. Second reason we know this refers to the Mosaic Covenant is implication. And you'll see the book of Deuteronomy is implicated throughout this message. God refers back to it. Deuteronomy being the summation by Moses at the end of his life of the entire Torah law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah, some called the Pentateuch, that's the Greek word for it. I like to call it Torah because it was originally given to the Jewish people. It's Hebrew. And Torah law was given by God and Deuteronomy is implied throughout. In verse 4, notice that he uses the phrase, the iron furnace. I brought them out of the land of Egypt and from the iron furnace. That comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for His own possession as today. The only other time the phrase iron furnace is used to refer to Egypt like this is in 1 Kings 8.51. Solomon uses the same thing in recounting the people being brought out of Egypt when he's dedicating the temple. But Solomon is referring back to Deuteronomy where Moses first coined the phrase the iron furnace of Egypt. So Deuteronomy is implied right there. In verse 5, notice he refers to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a Torah phrase. First five books of the Bible use that phrase, land flowing with milk and honey, numerous times. Once you get beyond the Torah, it's only five times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Land flowing with milk and honey in Joshua chapter 5, verse 6. Here in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 5. Again, we'll see it in Jeremiah 32, verse 22. In Ezekiel 20, verse 6. And in Ezekiel 20, verse 15, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in each and every case, it refers back to Torah law, Deuteronomy, and the Mosaic Covenant. Initiation, implication. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 20 says, When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied to become prosperous, the Lord says, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. God says, that's what's going to happen. He spoke those words through Moses. 
roughly 500 years before Jeremiah comes on the scene, Moses declares exactly what the people of Israel would do. Third reason why this has to be the Mosaic Covenant specifically is indication. Jeremiah indicates the Mosaic Covenant in his response to the Lord. What do you mean? Verse 5, he says, Amen! Amen, O Lord! Right on cue. Jeremiah says, Amen. Do you see where I'm going with this, anyone? You see... Back in Deuteronomy, fact, I'll tell you what, turn back to Deuteronomy 27, because some of you have that deer in the headlight stare. Deuteronomy 27. Why would Jeremiah suddenly blurt out, Amen! When the Lord declares the keeping of the covenant. When the children of Israel entered the land, Joshua called a meeting. This is what Moses said they needed to meet about. In that day. Deuteronomy 27, verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. There's that word again, Shema. Listen. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan... These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Jeremiah says, Amen. Because his heart knows right where the Lord is going. What is the Lord referring to? The blessings and the curses. I mentioned this briefly last week. Mount Gerizim, a great mountain that stands. There's a deep valley right in between and it goes right up then across to the other mountain, Mount Ebal. You can stand on Mount Gerizim and throw a stone and hit Mount Ebal. Moses stood in the middle with the Levitical priesthood. And the tribes, as divided here in Deuteronomy 27, half the tribes up on Mount Ebal, called the Mount of Cursing. Half the tribes up on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. And the Lord then goes through and has Joshua as commanded by Moses, as commanded by the Lord, through the rest of Deuteronomy 27, to call out curses. With every single curse that is called out in this covenant, the people on Mount Ebal would say, Amen! Amen! Amen, Lord! And then you get to chapter 28, and it's all blessing. And with every blessing that's called out, the people on Mount Gerizim were to cry out, Amen! Amen! And in this way, at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the Lord secured the people in the covenant in a very practical way. Takes them back through the law and says, I'm going to curse if this happens. I will bless if this happens. This is your part, Israel. And I want you to accept it line by line by saying, yes, Lord. If you want to enter this covenant. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. And so Jeremiah says, Amen. His Amen indicates, go back to Jeremiah 11, it indicates that he understands that this message of the Lord will deal specifically with the breaking 
of the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 6. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. And I believe literally Jeremiah would take this message. Remember the last message was at the temple gate in a very specific location? Now the Lord says, Go throughout the land throughout the streets of Jerusalem, throughout the cities of Judah, and proclaim this message. I want everyone to hear this. Whether it's a temple goer, or an average citizen who doesn't go to temple much, or someone who is even in the place of secretly not believing, I want everyone to hear this message. For I solemnly warned your fathers, verse 7, in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, listen, Shema, to my voice. Yet... They did not obey, or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And therefore I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. And then the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That word for conspiracy is also treason. God sees the violation of this covenant as nothing short of treasonous. They have turned their back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, both halves of the divided kingdom. They have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster on them which they will not be able to escape. Though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. And then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they surely will not save them in the time of disaster. For your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to the shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. Therefore, and this is the second time God says this to to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. What will God no longer do? Shema. You're not listening to me. The point comes where God says, I no longer will listen to you. How bad does it have to be with God when He says, I'm not listening to your prayer anymore? I will not hear you, though you cry out to me, my ear is closed to you. How bad does it have to be to reach that point? And yet, Israel, already taken out of the land, reached it. Now Judah is at the same place. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15 says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Now listen. Paul said to Timothy, though we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I would think that because of the nature and character of God, he could not close his ears to someone's prayer. He's God, right? And even though we're complete losers, doesn't he still, because he's God, doesn't he have to listen to prayer? Why does God no longer hear their prayers? It's because... That kind of prayer is disingenuous. It's what we talked about on Sunday. It's showing up to temple and it's praying the prayers and it's doing the sacrifices and it's dropping in the tithe and it's taking communion, it's doing all the temple stuff, the church stuff, but your heart's not there. 
God says it's disingenuous. There's no integrity in it. What you do Sunday morning is different than what you do the rest of the week. And by the way, I'm really glad to see you all came tonight. Because after Sunday, I wasn't sure if anyone would be back. I told Cheryl, man, going through Jeremiah, this is the book that will kill a church, if any. Because there's a lot of judgment here. It's harsh. I think of what Peter wrote. For now it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Well, welcome to it. Here comes the judge. And I'm so glad you came back. And I I think you'll see more of God's grace in this. But understand that if we, even we, come to the Lord for a quick fix, for a get me out of this mess, but our heart is not in the prayer. Oh, it's like that. I think I've mentioned this before. It's that line out of Hamlet where the murderer of Hamlet's father, I believe it's his uncle, is sitting there and he's, he's in the chapel and Hamlet comes up to kill him and he stops and he's listening and he's praying and Hamlet goes, oh, he's praying. I can't kill him while he's praying. He'll go right to heaven. So he leaves. You know? And the uncle who's praying says these words, my words go up, my thoughts stay low. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. He's right. Disingenuous prayers. And the people of Judah, though they would cry out, Save us, Lord! Save us! They don't want to be saved. Well, they want to be saved from Babylon, but they don't want to be saved for eternity. They don't don't want to be God's people. They want to do what they want to do. Save us from Babylon so we can go back to our idolatry. God has them called. The psalmist writes in Psalm 66.18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Do we regard wickedness in our culture? What was the last movie you saw? Don't tell me. If I regard wickedness, I'm checking it out. What's the last book you read? Don't tell me. I'm regarding wickedness. It's going to impact my prayer. David says, if I regard wickedness, God's not going to hear me. I've said this a hundred times in here. God doesn't play games. Which is wonderful because He doesn't mess with us either. He's not toying with us. But in the same way, He doesn't want us to play games with Him. Just keep it real, Rick. Come and talk to me and pray to me and cry out to me, but bring your heart when you do so. In fact, Isaiah, after saying, yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. But the Lord says to Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. In verse 18, God says, Come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be made like wool. That's the gospel of grace. That's the gospel of our salvation. And by the way, it is our singular responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ until He comes. If you wonder, what am I supposed to do till Jesus shows up? Share the gospel. That is our responsibility. Well, what about service project? Yeah, do those too, but you're supposed to share the gospel. That's why we're here. Well, what about humanitarian aid? Sure, give that, but share the gospel. What about mission work? Absolutely, share the gospel. What about serving in my church? Share the gospel. Because of all the other things that the church can engage in and be involved in, our singular purpose for being here, our great commission is to make disciples of all nations. Share the Gospel. It's why we're here. Now, Jeremiah, 
is still going to pray for His people. He's going to keep praying for His people several times over the next few chapters. And God's going to correct him. Now, now Jeremiah, I told you don't do that. <laughs> Knock it off. Stop praying. Because I don't want to hear it. But Jeremiah keeps doing it and the Lord keeps correcting him. Something about Jeremiah that I just love. This is what Brian would use this phrase. He's the real deal. Jeremiah is the real deal. This is about as authentic a persona in the Bible of, of any that we see. He's just, he's just real. He's honest. He's genuine. He's open. When God gives a judgment and Jeremiah has to preach it and it bothers Jeremiah, guess what? He says so. If he sees the people rejecting the message he gives, guess what? He cries about it. He weeps. And when he talks to the Lord, he tells him what's on his heart. Lord, I don't want to speak your word anymore. But it's like a fire and you're giving me heartburn. We'll get there. Jeremiah 20. He is just so honest and so real with the Lord. And Jeremiah reminds me that God may not be interested in disingenuous prayers, but He always responds to my prayers of distress. Man, if I'm in distress, He's there. If I'm disingenuous, not so much. Verse 15. What right has my beloved in my house? That is, in the temple. What she has, when she has done many vile deeds. Can the sacrificial flesh take away from you your disaster so that you can rejoice? The sacrificial flesh, that's just the meat of sacrifice. It's the animal sacrifice. Now, I, I want to point this out because uh, you may hear this from another place, but verse 15 is considered very difficult to translate in the Hebrew. And we just read it and kind of skirt on by it, but if we were reading it in Hebrew, it's like, what? what, what what's he saying? Kyle and Delich give what I believe of all the different translations I read, it seems to be the most coherent of what Jeremiah was trying to write. There are those who say, well, why wasn't Jeremiah clear in verse 15? This is Scripture. And I think, again, it's because Jeremiah is the real deal. And that even as he's writing, the things that God gave him, trying to keep up, that in this verse he, he's overwhelmed himself. And so he, he sketches out what is intended, and the meaning is there, but perhaps it's a little confusing. Kyle and Delich translate it this way. What mean my people in my temple with their hypocritical sacrifices? Can vows and offerings presented by you there avert calamity from you? If it could be so, well might you shout for joy. If your sacrifices could help at this point, if you could do religious things and be saved by it, then perhaps you could give up a shout of praise, maybe singing a little extra worship song at the end of the hour. But again, this is what we dealt with Sunday morning. It's coming to temple, but it's disregarding Jesus and the temple of the heart. It's external religion without internal relationship, and God calls it treason. It's treacherous. You don't follow me that way. Because you see, God, like Jeremiah, God is the real deal. Verse 16, The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and in form. And this is what God called Israel from the outset. The olive tree. You know the olive tree is that tree that produces the olive oil. We get the pure virgin olive oil. And the best of the best of the best oil from the olive tree is used in the lampstand of the temple to keep burning the light 
bride in the temple. Representative, and the Jewish mind realizes this, understands it, representative of the Holy Spirit of God. The temple lampstand represents the Spirit of God. Interesting in the New Testament, Revelation 1, 2, and 3, the lampstand represents not only the Holy Spirit of God, but also the church. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's in us. Because the Spirit moves and lives and breathes in the church, which is unique to the church. It was not that way in Israel. Remember, God would pour out a Spirit on David, on the prophets, on individuals, but not wholesale on the people. What a marvelous thing that God looks at believers who come to Him in faith. Peter says, Repent and be baptized every one of you and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happens when you get a room full of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit? The room is filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the lampstand. We are the light of the world. And so the olive tree, Israel was supposed to be that. The Lord says, I have called you that tree. I have called you the green tree. But watch what He says. With the noise of a great tumult, He has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. I called you the olive tree. The tree is no longer tender and green. Now it's tender for fire. Now it's just for burning. Continuing on verse 17, The Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. Baal. Verse 18, now Jeremiah speaks. And I will try to always point out to you when Jeremiah is responding or speaking. Sometimes we miss the little quotation or the little, you know, the little marks there saying that it's God speaking. Jeremiah says, Moreover, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised plots against me. Jeremiah saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Jeremiah now quotes the people plotting behind his back. Let us now destroy the tree with its fruit and let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. (laughs) This is intriguing. In fact, this section of the book, the fact this rest of this chapter and on into the next is a section of intrigue. The Lord here reveals to Jeremiah that there's a conspiracy for Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah says in verse 18, The Lord made it known to me, and I knew it. The Lord told him. Jeremiah didn't hear this. He didn't figure it out. He didn't know what was going on. There's a conspiracy for the life of Jeremiah. And the Lord points it out to him. Hey, um, Jeremiah, just want you to be aware that the people are gunning for you. They are loaded for bear. They're ready to take you out. For the first time in Jeremiah, and it won't be the last, we see that the preacher is threatened for his preaching. All Jeremiah is doing is innocently bringing the word that the Lord told him to bring, and he has not just taken flack for it. Oh, I've taken flack for it. Big deal. Uh, uh, An email every now and then. Oh, that that hurt, you know. (laughs) Jeremiah's life is in danger. Not one of you have sent me an email threatening my life, and I'll tell you what, if you do, I'm coming after you. That's a great threat. If the people act treacherously before their God or toward their God, brothers and sisters, how will the people act toward those who bring His message? This is not a threat 
for a concern just for Jeremiah. It is a concern for anyone who will stand up and speak God's Word. And Jeremiah reveals this to us. Look at verse 20. He says, But O Lord of hosts who judges righteously, who tries the feelings in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. So if I get one of those emails, that's what I'm going to (laughs) pray. Let me see your vengeance. But listen to what he says, and you might even want to underline this in your Bibles. It's a marvelous statement. For to you I have committed my cause. He knows why he's being threatened. It's not because of anything he's done wrong. It's because he's committed his life to the Lord. It's because he has spoken the message of the Christ. By the Spirit of Christ, he is speaking the truth. His cause is the Lord's cause, and he is going to do what the Lord tells him to do. And I love that Jeremiah takes the threats straight back to the Lord. Like God says, Jeremiah, they're coming after you. Well, Jeremiah doesn't take off running. Jeremiah doesn't get a bunch of guys around him and say, okay, we got to be ready so we can take them out when they come to take me out. He just turns around and goes, Lord, you've got to protect me. Lord, you've got to go before me. I love that. He goes to the right place. Verse 21, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anatot who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord so that you will not die at our hand. That's the men of Anatot. That's their threat. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I'm about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters will die by famine. And a remnant will not be left to them. For I will bring disaster on the men of Anatot, the year of their punishment. Which, by the way, was right around the corner. Did you catch what we just discovered? Anatot. Anatot. Does that city sound familiar? That is the city that Jeremiah is from. Anatot is Jeremiah's hometown. Go back to the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 1. He is of the priests of Anatot. That's his hometown. These aren't just a group of people somewhere in the land gunning for Jeremiah. This is his people. The people he grew up with. The men who were around when he was a kid. His hometown is coming after him. And Jesus, as usual, is spot on when He says, Matthew 13, 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. But that's not the issue here. It's it's Jeremiah's hometown. And I just want to say to you all, and I say this truly to encourage, one of the fastest ways to lose honor or even to receive threats in your hometown and even among those of your own household is to fulfill your calling, preach the Word. Well, great, Rick. So not five or ten minutes ago you said, share the Gospel, and now you're saying, but if you share the Gospel, you might be threatened or in trouble. Exactly. Share the Gospel anyway. Because if people come after you, they don't have to deal with you. They have to deal with the Lord. And he is fully aware of threats against his people. I truly mean this as encouraging. We need to be sharing the gospel so much that we're taking flack for it. Because when we take flack for it, we're blessed. It's a good thing. I talked about, again, on Sunday, You know what, what is the church offensive in the world for? What, what are the offenses that we're bringing to society? 
The offense we should be known for is the cross. That's the offense. People need to hear about the cross from us more than anything else. Doesn't mean we shouldn't stand against abortion. Absolutely we should. Doesn't mean we shouldn't stand against legalized drugs. It doesn't mean we shouldn't stand against the whole homosexual agenda that's being driven in our country. Of course we should stand against those things. Of course we should take a stand against immorality. But the message from our mouths more than any other should be the cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ. By His death we are saved. In His resurrection we live forever. That's our message. And Jesus says in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jeremiah. Isaiah before him. Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of them. John 15.18, If the world hates you, Jesus says... No, it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now consider this, gang. People will hate each other for all kinds of dumb reasons. A lot of reasons that you can get in trouble with someone here in the world. Physical appearance, someone might not like the way you dress, or the way you look, or someone might not like your personal opinions, or your politics. Or someone might choose to hate you because of your ethnic background or your favorite sports team or, or your business or whatever. And you know what? So be it. Big deal. If someone hates me because I like flannel shirts, whatever, they're still comfortable. <laughs> but if someone hates you because as Jeremiah says at the end of verse 20, To you I have committed my cause. If someone hates you because you wear the name of Christ as a Christian, count it all joy. That is worth it. To be hated for Christ is a blessing that the world will never understand. 